This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Do you ever wish that you had more time in your day? What would you do with an extra hour all to yourself? Would you go for a run? Take a nap? Read a book? The possibilities are endless. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, deal with overthinking, alter negative behaviors, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash heartwisdom today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash heartwisdom. Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense and his clear, open heart. In order to continue presenting these podcasts, we need your support. Please go to mindpodnetwork.com jack, and you can donate there, or you can go through our Amazon or Audible affiliate links. And that's another great way to support the podcast. Thank you for your generous attention. This is great. Jack Cornfield and Pete Holmes making fun of my voice. Well, <laughs> is it really your voice, Duncan? That's right. Who are we? Are we this voice? Are we this weird body that we stick, you know, avocados and hamburgers in? Is that are you a hamburger and avocado or something more? <laughs> yeah, that thing. That's something that I was reading in one of your books that really, you know, the thing where you're sort of reading about a re- Buddhism or a religion and then and then and then it kind of like sneaks up on sneaks you. up on you and then you can't go back. And that was the thing in one of I don't remember which book it was, uh, but it was a uh, find you find where you are in your body where you were talking about find where are you in your body and i'd never really thought about that at all and then i was stoned then thinking about that and so that was a really big moment that i haven't come back from which is <laughs> where am i in my body yeah no what is your shape too that's a, that's a I, I don't remember when somebody introduced me to that thought but i think i was in college when they were like where does your kind of feeling of yourself end you know what i mean i always feel like i'm in the upper part of my body so there's Which a, explains there's my a passage where Alice Walker writes, she says, one day when I was sitting there like a motherless child, it came to me that feeling of being a part of everything. And I knew if I cut a tree, my arm would bleed. And I laugh and I cry and I run all around the house. In fact, when it happens, you can't miss it. Yeah. And so one of the weird things about being a human being is that we have um, this capacity of shifting or changing identity. And so you're the identity of your work or you're the identity of your, you know, culture or your particular class, you know, or the identity of your politics. I'm a Democrat or a Libertarian or Republican or you're identified with your body or your emotions. But then you have these moments where you're making love or you're 
walking in the mountains or you're so listening funny. to amazing piece of music or like that Alice Walker thing. And so I said, wait a second. It's not, I'm not just my body. Those peak moments. I was ju- I was just listening. I'm on a pretty big Deepak Chopra kick. And he was he, he was talking about that. About he stole the, it from me. He stole anyway, it from me. Okay. <laughs> that's weird. <laughs> no, he didn't. No, that. But we that, all stole. We're all actually thieves of, of all the previous generation's spiritual comedies. So. Well, I'm glad that it's not constantly changing. It would be nice that you guys all have similar uh, ideas. Is. But that idea that uh, when you're when and he had those same similar examples of making love or looking in the eyes of a lover or looking at a view or some, something that really you don't need to be to- told that it's happening. It's like falling in love, I suppose. And uh, and you just believe that it's real. Yeah, yeah man. Into yeah. it. Well, what is real? I don't know. <laughs> That's a good answer. I like that answer. <laughs> That's the only answer, probably. Yeah, no idea. yeah. You know, there, there's a Zen master I studied with, a Korean Zen master, Dai Sansanim, and he used to say, he would ask you things like, "What's real?" or "What's consciousness?" or "What is love?" And I don't know. He said, "Good, you keep don't know mind only. I don't know, don't know." He said, "This is a very good mind. <laughs> <laughs> it's really innocent mind, beginner's mind." Right. What is it? Well, don't we get in our own way the more learning in a certain sense that we do? I mean, isn't there a certain childishness that's encouraged? To yeah, getting to yeah and there's that famous Zen story of the of the governor of Kyoto going to see the Zen master and saying, I have a bunch of questions, and Zen master says, I'm sorry, I'm too busy, um, uh, and, and, and looking at him and says, your cup is too full. Hmm. And so the guy pours the tea out of the cup, walks out the door, comes back in and says, you know, I'd like to introduce myself, does it all over again, not as the governor of Yukota. Hi, I'd like to introduce you. my same is so-and-so, and I'm just learning. And the Zen says, oh, yes, come sit down. We have a nice conversation. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I've heard a similar Zen story where the guy, with also with tea, mm-hmm. and uh, he comes to the guy and he, and he wants to learn, and he pours him a cup of tea, and he talks about how, like, he's been all over, he studied with all the masters and, and accumulated all this knowledge. And, that, yeah, you've heard it. And then he pours the tea and he keeps overflowing it. And he's like, what are you doing? You're spilling the tea. And he's like, you can't put more tea in a cup that's that full. You know who wow. said that? Yeah. Seinfeld. Big really? Zen guy. No way. Yeah, I heard that from, not in person, but I heard him say that in an interview. But the D.P. Chopes thing that, that came to mind when you were saying that was we were talking about death, and he was like, what are you talking, like, what you are you talking about? You were talking about being an avocado or a libertarian. And we were talking about the idea that, like, college Pete, or easier, baby Pete, is already dead. <laughs> you know what I mean? That we, We're constantly fading away and everything is a dream. I, I, I find a lot of delight in those sorts of things. Even that conversation I had with him is already a dream. Even when I met you, Jack, is already a dream. That's it, right. That forces me it into the moment. It goes back into the void with the pharaohs and the dinosaurs and things. 2000, remember the year Y2K and all that stuff yeah. that was going? Yeah. It's gone. It's a dream. Yes, yeah. 2013 is a dream. Right. And things come trooping out of the void and we have this moment that's absolutely magic. Mm. And then it's gone. Mm-hmm. This is now. This reminds me of what happened to me at this VR studio that I went to, which you should go to. Went to VR studio. It's a virtual reality holodeck. <laughs> that's like that's your thing. Now. Got the most advanced <laughs> VR tech. Really? Right now, yeah. And it really is. Uh, it is astounding how realistic it is. And but what happens after you take the goggles off? After you've been in this virtual reality for about twenty minutes. You take the goggles off and your mind 
gets this kind of digital jet lag because it can't understand how suddenly you are in the Ukraine at some kind of weird shooting range, and now you're back in Culver City in a tech mm. lab, and it's a it's a you're you're disoriented. But I can only compare it to jet lag. And the the guys who are working on this stuff, they said. It feels like you're waking from a dream, doesn't it? And it is exactly like that. The mind just can't accept that reality has shifted instantly from one place but to the next. What's interesting, is I think the foundation for a lot of my own spiritual curiosity is an active dreaming life. And I think that sort of disillusionment with this reality comes from the fact that I'm snapped out of a very even more realistic than this reality dream life. So I'm in a dream and I know I'm dreaming often and I'm like, that wall looks like it's stacked with books. I can see the names of the books and I can see the colors in the in the grain of the wood and all that stuff. And then it's over. You wake up, sometimes you're snapped out of it. So just like taking the reality goggles off right. and then putting them back on every time you sleep. And also I think that informs how we view death. Every night we die and we have dreams and we go this other place and then every morning we're resurrected. That's so does that translate for you in not being afraid of dying? Well, that's a big fear for me, I suppose, unfortunately. When when the, you know, I, I think of that Indiana Jones wall that was going down and you got to grab your hat before it closes. A lot of the stuff that was swept into my subconscious before I was old enough to kind of put boundaries up there was a lot of uh, you are evil, you're bad, uh, your boner is evil, you want to fuck girls and that's evil. Uh, you want to say things like fuck girls and that is evil and uh, you need to be purged and cleansed and God doesn't like you the way you are. So when I'm on an, a bumpy air, air like right now, I can tell you or when I'm meditating, I can tell you that I'm easy. I'm ready to slip away and that's fine and I, I don't fear that. But if I'm on an airplane, uh, you know, and it gets bumpy, I start feeling feelings like I don't want to go because I'm afraid that I'm going to go to sleep or die and have a bad dream, that I'm mm. going to be judged somehow, that yeah. I'm going to be punished somehow. Well, and it turns out that that judgment is really one's own self-judgment. You know, and if you look in the Ars Moriendi and all the kind of spiritual texts from the Egyptian Book of the Dead and the Middle Ages Books of the Dead and the, you know, various other and so forth, that there's judgment that, that that's depicted but it turns out from people that have, whether it's near-death experiences or remember, somehow seem to remember having died, past lives and so forth, mm. the judgment mm. isn't somebody's going to come and judge you. It's really the what's been in the way you judge yourself. Mm. Um, and we judge ourselves so much. I mean, they wouldn't hire you to be a judge in a civilized country. Most of us, we're so hard on ourselves. Mm. And then, well, we think, because you're, like you're talking, you, brought, you get brought up and there's something wrong, original sin, or something originally wrong with you, mm. and you better keep judging yourself or you're just going to turn into this person who rapes and pillages and so forth. That's who you really are. Right. And that's nonsense. In, in Buddhist psychology, the opposite ground begins by saying to you, Oh, nobly born, you are the sons and daughters of the Buddhas. Remember your own pure, true nature. This is a dream. This is a dream created by mind and consciousness and form. And you can make beautiful things with it. This is what's given to you to play mm. with and to work with. And you have a fundamental nobility and dignity and capacity to do that. And that's a really different message. Mm -hmm. I think that, that uh, speaks to my urgency to want to experience God. I, I don't like the one that was just told to me 
through anecdotes. And the more I hear things like that and, and trust my own instincts and things that resonate with me, the more peace I do feel. That makes perfect sense. When you want to tell me that I'm a part of God, that I'm God manifesting in this form and that music stand is God manifesting in that form, I guess we would call this pantheism, wouldn't we, Duncan? I, I don't know. Which is a type of blasphemy, as I was raised. Uh, that, that, feels, uh, that feels good to me, that all of this feels like a, a type of Well, the beautiful thing is that it's not philosophy, that it's really the description of, we could call it mystical experience, but it's just deep human experience. We, as we talked about, we know it when you sit with somebody at the side of the bed when somebody's dying, or you sit there with someone who's giving birth, hmm. since we're three guys sitting here, we get to witness it, but we don't do it. The gates between the worlds open and you realize, wow, this is a whole mysterious thing to be incarnate in human being. Spirit comes into the body, it leaves the body. That must be true for me. What we are is consciousness. Mm. What we are is awareness itself. Wow, look at that. And then all of a sudden, it's not that old-time religion, mm -hmm. but it's the direct mystical experience of the galaxies and you're being part of them. That's very interesting. I, I'm very interested in, in, and this is one of the things Duncan and I talked about when we first kind of had our first kind of mystical discussion, was taking the Christ message away from judgment and fear and sort of like organized religion, all that sort of thing. We had the Christ consciousness, which is one of the first things you kind of taught me about, Duncan, and his call, I think, to enlightenment. And then we had that turned into something that was more like, don't fuck your neighbor's wife. <laughs> right. Which he never said, as far as I'm aware. That preceded him. And I, A lot of that stuff is in the Old Testament. Most of what creates a kind of fundamentalism in Christianity is is really the old tribal dictums of the, of the Old Testament. Right. It wasn't what apparently, who knows what he actually did, but apparently the records don't have him going around saying that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. No, and, and, and but there is this, there are, you know, he was, the thing that he was talking about was a very radical, radical change in the way people are living. And if you apply what he's saying to your life now, then you're going to have the most, ra a very radical shift in your life. In the same way in Buddhism, when, the, you know, there's this story when they ask the Buddha, uh, you know, what are you? And he's and, and are you a god? I don't know remember exactly how it goes, but he says, you know, I'm I woke up. I'm I woke I'm, right. I'm, I'm awake. awake. And when you consider that, it it implies that what he's saying is I'm awake when a great many people are asleep. And it, it's what you are talking about. Uh, waking from a dream or taking off the right. VR goggles. Right. It's that radical a shift. When he says, I'm awake, he's not saying, well, you'll be more lucid if you start meditating. It's saying, this is a the difference between being asleep and awake. It's that radical uh, a shift. Both of these teachers are pointing in the direction of this thing that is... Well, Christ's talking about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven and all that sort of stuff coming to you now and being here. here now. Yeah, that we we changed. A lot of people took the kingdom of heaven as, as heaven being something that happens after we die. And I do think Christ was talking about something that was here and now and easily accessible being an enlightened being that could kind of you know, see see the truth, I suppose, as opposed to this lie that we keep. I find in. using the word enlightenment to be problematic in our culture. It came through the Victorian translations of Buddhist and Hindu things and so forth. I like what you're saying, Duncan, of using the word awake rather than enlightenment, because people have all these ideas about enlightenment, and you think I've got to go to the Himalayas and sit in a cave or or 
you know, find some enlightened master someplace or other. And, and it's actually where you are. It's awakening. It's not enlightening, but it's actually dropping away of that separate small sense of self and sensing that you're part of this great, great mystery. Right. One of my colleagues and dear friends, um, Trudy Goodman, who runs the in, in Santa Monica Insight Meditation Center there, talked about before she ever studied Buddhist practice, she was um, left alone in labor for some circumstance in this hospital a long time ago, and there wasn't anybody with her, and it was scary and painful, and all the, um, you know, confusion of being 20 years old or whatever it was, and giving birth and being all by yourself. And then she said something took over, and she described how her body felt like it wasn't her body, it was all the mothers who had ever given birth to children and that she was part of something that contractions come by themselves just like our breath comes by itself. And we're being breathed, we're not breathing, we're being breathed mm. by the earth. And she was giving birth because she was life giving birth to itself. And she said, oh, then I realized afterward I need to find the spiritual practice to help me to understand and keep this wisdom, this understanding alive in me. Hmm. So we have it. It's part <clears throat> it's part of every child and they're a child of the spirit, of their innocence. And then, you know, it's enculturated out of us or we lose it and we get caught in the body of fear, which is that separate sense of self. And it's fine to have fear and it's fine to feel separate sometimes too. Um, it's just not the whole story. I am interested in the in the how we reconcile uh, being awake and also being successful. When you see uh, this this lie that we're all kind of participating in this society, and that people, I think fundamentally, when you do become wealthy, let's just say monetarily wealthy and and self sustaining, it often comes down to a couple like, you know, somewhat selfish decisions, or at least the ambition to envision things being better for you than necessarily everybody. Uh, which is, I think, kind of tricky. So you're asking the question about how does spirituality fit together with creating material wealth for yourself in some way? And here's Gandhi who said, my best thing is to own almost nothing, a tin cup and a spinning wheel that I make my cloth. And, you know, so I can't be bought or sold. No one owns me. Mm. Um, <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. um, but can you own a big house and you know have investments and so forth? Well, if and you look, still be yes, pure. If you look at all of it's not uh, just someone like Deepak who is obviously doing well or Eckhart Tolle. These are these are best-selling authors. You right. know what I mean? Where in the Buddha is a bestseller, and so is Jesus. By the way, that they're just not getting their royalties on the, uh, right. on the physical plane. <laughs> like they may be getting karmic well, royalties, but anyway. I guess it goes back to that thing of like Duncan. You told me this thing. I always think of is that when when someone does wake up, that waking other people up is like being in a plane crash in the in the Arctic and you swim out and everybody's probably dead and you sit on the ice and you dry off for a second. And then the teacher is the guy that dives back in thinking that maybe somebody else, even though it's unlikely, might be, you might be able to unbuckle them and get them that's off a, to you. That's a pretty dire description of <laughs> yeah, state. That was I mean, it's kind of cool, but it's a little <laughs> bit dire. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I do think we help each other wake up. I think that just as you said, you have lucid dreams and you realize that when you're dreaming, 
that also that it's a dream. And there's a whole Buddhist practice of dream yoga in which you, 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 you awaken in your dreams and you also watch yourself shift from dream state to the regular waking dream state. Mm. And you start to realize all is created from consciousness and mind. Yeah. Um, but I don't think it's that as dire. I think people can wake up in a moment. You can remind them. And it's a really beautiful thing. And, you know, sometimes it happens collectively. And then we fall back asleep at different times. You know, I use that um, funny quote from Annie Lamott, the last podcast I was talking about, where where she says, my mind is like a bad neighborhood. I try not to go there alone, <laughs> you know. And so people are sometimes afraid of silence or vastness or mystery because nobody taught them that it's okay. In fact, I read a sociological study that said that the majority of Americans have had mystical experiences and most of them wouldn't want one again. Hmm. And the reason is, I think, because there's no context for it. Well, what do I do with that? You know, I'm supposed to get a job and hmm. get a paycheck and do this. And then how do I handle that? And it wasn't there in church. Joseph Campbell, the great mythologist, said that primarily modern organized religion serves as an inoculation against mystery. It's like, okay, wow. it sort of covers that base and then you don't really have to look deeply. Right. But when it happens and you go, oh, wow, I'm not who I thought I was. I'm spirit. I'm soul. The world is illuminated by consciousness. Um, it's not that far away, really. And if you have good friends or you have a community or you have some support and somebody you realize, oh, I could live differently. I could remember this. Mm. <laughs> and you do. You know, and remember it and forget it, of course. Yes, but and 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 but again, you know, I don't think we covered the question of what about wealth? What about if you find yourself in some kind of opulent, wealthy life? If you look at Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, the prince surrounded, he had a harem. He did. He had a you harem. You say that with some enthusiasm, though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I do. Yeah, I mean, how exactly. great would that? He had a harem, and he was loaded, and had everything. And look what he did. He wandered off into the forest and became an ascetic. And in the same way, if you find yourself with a ton of money and you find yourself in this situation of um, having investments, as you said, then you're, you're also in this place. I've been reading Zizek. Have you gotten into Slav? Oh, man. Zizek's amazing. But he there's a book I'm reading called Violence that he wrote. And he's exploring what is violence? What is it really? And he talks about how in to have wealth in this society, it requires a healthy level of denial. In the same way to eat a steak, if you really want to enjoy it, you can't think about where this steak came from. I was actually at a steakhouse in Vegas with sad pictures of cows on the wall. I don't know why they did it. And, and, and out of the speakers at some point, I swear I thought I heard like animals screaming, like they were piping it in. And so it's this this uh, what Zizek is saying is like this wealth to to be truly wealthy in a world where so many people are starving. Where right now there's a refugee crisis. We have the largest refugee crisis in the world, the largest groups of people being displaced since World War Two. That to be wealthy and to be in this situation is a violent, is innately violent in the sense that you have to ignore the suffering around you if you're going to have tons of dough. So. Well, how do you wake up in the midst of having all this? Isn't there something to be said for what Gandhi did? Just drop it, man. Let it go. Just drop it. I think it would be um, 
both idealistic, overly idealistic, and oppressive to say that that's how people have to live. Mm. We have all these possibilities, and to come in as a human being, you have this mysterious palette of possibilities, and some have gifts to be artists, um, and some will be successful, and they'll get a bunch of money being artists. Some have a, have an economic gift. I have a friend who is it's who's amazingly good with numbers and can remember, and he happens to be a gifted financial person. He's not exploitive at all. He owns property and helps other people, but it's just he had that gift, um, and he likes doing it and so forth. We have all these kinds of gifts, and you say, okay, well, the only thing a human being should be is to give away as much as they can because other people are hungry um, and so forth, and we should all live baseline really, really simply. That would be a kind of dull world. Mm. I think. Mm. I think there is something, mm, Dalai Lama says, middle bath is his, his language for it. I think that there's, there's a possibility of having a relationship with money that's wise, in which you use it both to care for yourself and your family or your business, but also you use it to care for the earth and to serve. Um, there's a relationship to wealth that's full of greed and hatred and exploitation, makes you unhappy and makes the world a worse place. Um, there's a relationship just because the Buddha left the dancing into the palace and so forth doesn't mean we shouldn't have music and dancing. Hmm. I would be really sad for a world without music and dancing. There are monks and nuns who've chosen to live really simply, and I did that. The monastery was beautiful to live that silent life without all of that. Absolutely. And you really learn a lot and you can be live in this exquisite, vast, beautiful, open place. It's not always that way. Sometimes you don't like the monk in, monk in the hut next to you and you get in conflict with him. Monasteries are not all that peaceful, you know, but, mm -hmm. but you can. But I don't want to take spirituality and it would be another oppression like you talked about, you know, Pete, of your childhood religion giving you a sense of sin or something to say money is bad or commerce is bad or, or you know, some other create, creative arts are bad. They're not. They can be done in ways that are wise and playful and joyful. Um, and joy, you know, the fact that, that someone else is suffering it doesn't mean you have to be despondent all the time. That's not helping that person in that village or in that refugee camp. Mm. I see the Dalai Lama and people go to hear him laugh as much as anything. And I think they do because they realize that he carries the weight of all the tragedy of Tibet, but that it's not the end of the story, that his spirit is still free anyway and that he can be joyful and laugh. And, and you know, as he said, they've taken so much they've you know, burned our temples and stolen holy books and taken our opportunity to keep our culture alive in these different ways, why should I let them take my happiness? Hmm. That there's a certain way in which our spirit is free and then we can play in this world and do beautiful things with it and depends what palette you pick. Huh. How's that? Well, that's it. good. <laughs> You know what's weird? So you can make a little money on your podcast, just not too much, and you have uh, to give half of it away to refugees. And, uh, oh, no. I'm sorry. I'm going to be auditing your tax returns <laughs> to make sure you've done your part. But there, something that I don't think people talk about is the fact that uh, there is sometimes money and luxury. Let's just say having more than you need, not necessarily living paycheck to paycheck, does enable you to actually have less concern 
So I, I don't think about I'm not I don't consider myself wealthy, but I don't think about money as much as I did when I was broke. You just have other concerns. And it's true. If you have if you don't have food, shelter and financial security, you worry about that all the time. And this is a very serious and real comment about our human. But then the happiness studiness studies show that if you have a decent level of money, which is, I forget what standard they put for a family. It was $75,000 a year, which is above our national average a little bit. Then you stop thinking about money. And then people don't get happier between 75000 and, you know, $7.5 billion or something. Wow. That part doesn't affect you. Yes, you're not worried then. You know that your rent will be paid, right. that your kids will have clothes, that the things that matter to you are covered. And after that, happiness is not really affected very much by how much more money you have. Right. Hmm. I will say, and I don't really like talking about this stuff, but I, I have a business manager that pays my bills, mm-hmm. and then I have an assistant that mm-hmm. dropped my laundry off today. You know what I mean? So, like, what did I do today? I meditated. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because I didn't have to pay my bills or do my laundry. So is it a bad thing, or do you, are you giving your assistant I'm a job? A, I'm saying it's a good thing. He's got a job. Right. You, you get to meditate right. part of the time and also do the creative work that you do, that right. kind of kooky creative work that takes meditative time. And your assistant has a job and would probably be very grateful for that job. So does my business manager. If you treat them well. <laughs> I agree. I just don't, I don't hear too many people talking about the truth. When I hear that Richard Gere is a Buddhist, I'm like, yeah, I'm sure you have a dope sand sculpture room that's painted a clay gray and and it's incense and it's probably transcendent and wonderful you know what i mean i do think that that's something that i don't hear too many people discussing oh yeah you're you're saying sort of like okay well like here's richard gear the eminent buddhist who's got some kind of like probably has like somewhere in his house an envelope filled with like the buddha's hair or something <laughs> and and here he <laughs> and he's like he's he's got access to he could i bet richard gear has the doll i bet he can text the dalai lama i bet richard gear can uh, i bet he can I, he, I can send emoticons to the dalai lama right sure that's right so it's so, always just those hands one, right or yeah. one of those little ones with your hands together. <laughs> yeah, he type. could send the hand emoticon and of the Dalai And then Dalai the Dalai Lama Here's... sends back one with his hands together and a little smiley <laughs> uh, one saying, it's yeah, okay. That's right. And so, so, does, yeah. No, please. so is that a good deal that you have that you have access to the Dalai Lama? But like here's that? really... Well, the, is he's, it fair? I, it's like he's saying this is like doping in sports. It's like, you know, it, you know the, the, it's not fair in baseball if somebody starts blasting with testosterone, they have an unfair advantage over the rest of us. Or you're just the Yankees and you have the money to buy the best players i'm saying i'm a pretty spiritual person as long as every single one of my needs is being met (laughs) that's really what i'm saying (laughs) that is part of our that's part of our task the thing is that they won't always be met for example and i say that when people come and meditate and they go through hard stuff you know and their body is hurting and they say why can't i move and just make it easier i say you can move you don't have to make it hard but once in a while, it's actually all right to actually useful to sit when your body's hurting or when you feel like you're going to die of loneliness or mm. guilt or grief or all this stuff that you don't usually let yourself look at. Because sometime in your life, you're going to be in a hospital either sitting at the bedside of somebody who's dying or going through this stuff, or you're going to be going through it. And if you don't know how to handle that part as well, you're uh, up the creek, really. Mm. Um if you want to take the curriculum and have 
the 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows of a human incarnation and do something beautiful with it, you actually need to somehow be able to bear it and, and stand it and open that window of the mind and heart. And then you have some choices. Without it, then you become frightened. I don't have enough money. I don't. But if you realize, okay, I can live simply. If I lose the money, I have other ways to do that. Then you're not living in that body of fear mm. that restrains you. So, yeah, of course, it's nice to have things easier. We want that as human beings. It won't always be that way. It's guaranteed there's going to be some moment where it's not what you want. And then how do you live? You'll have plenty of opportunity to practice with it, which is why it's actually helpful to have some some inner training or some inner learning of how to how to be present for the whole catastrophe. Hmm. You know, I have a question for you, Jack. I... I, I I think part of my problem is uh, I look, I take things personally. So when I have some sort of spiritual achievement, I, I'm like, oh, I'm cool. I'm like a good meditator. Mm -hmm. And then I always want other meditators, people. It's very interesting to me that you're saying that you've you've done the monk thing or, or you know, lived in a meditative society sort of thing. I want to hear the superhero stories. I want you to tell me that you've left your body and, you know, I seen have. The, well, that's what and I'm saying. I came back, right. And then <laughs> there it wasn't the same old guy. That's the problem. <laughs> Leaving wasn't the hard part. It was it was coming back. It's like waking from the dream is, oh, let's see. Now I have to brush my teeth. Now I have to pee. Now I have to go deal with my relationship. Now I have to talk to my business manager, which I don't have, but I could, should very well have. Yeah, sure. Sure. good idea. It's, it's, it's nice to not have to uh, worry about your rent. But yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, Being in that way, I, you know, I, I did this book a while ago that the title was After the Ecstasy, the Laundry, in which <laughs> the point of it in some way was to say that there is no enlightened retirement. People think, okay, I'm going to get this great state. Everything's over my heart, it's over my mind. It's so peaceful. It's over. And now I got it and I can hold it and I can just keep it. And you can't hold on to anything. And even the Buddha and Jesus, because you were bringing them up and so forth, they had backaches and physical problems the Buddha did. And then, then he had all these monks that were misbehaving and they wouldn't listen to him. And he said, listen, I'm the Buddha. And they said, yeah, yeah, but we're... And they, they were so... <laughs> he was so frustrated with them in some way. They were so recalcitrant that finally he just threw his hands up and said, I'm going to go and live in the woods with the animals. They're a lot easier to live with than you monks. And spent a year kind of away you know, removing himself from all these people that were fighting. Um, and we don't have to ask what happened to Jesus. Um, right. And But even before that, when Buddha and Jesus went home, they had trouble with their families, just in case anybody listening is having those troubles. There's a long lineage of this. So this is called human incarnation in some way. And how do we live in a way that we take this mystery of being a human being um, we don't forget the mystery. We don't get lost in the sort of everydayness so much that we've forgotten it. And then we make it a work of art, you know. But it's not going to be always open. It's going to be up and down and hot and cold and praise and blame and gain and loss um, and fame and disrepute. That's the way he looked at you it's for woven. And he looked at me for <laughs> Well, you don't like the disrepute part. You I like the fame part. <laughs> He gets no, the disrepute. I'm the fame. You're the disrepute. <laughs> no, not go. according to how he lives. That's how that. <laughs> and so, what are you going to do with the? This is what incarnation is woven with, right? And you can say, all right, I'm going to try and only have pleasure and no pain, and I'm going to have gain and no loss, and I'm going to have birth and no death. I don't know what planet you think you're on. Hmm. You know, 
So, and as a culture, we try, you know, our security devices, and we would try to make everything really secure. Helen Keller said at one point, security is mostly a superstition. It does not exist in nature, nor do children on the whole experience it. She knew what she was talking about. Mm. Avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than outright exposure. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. And she mm. says that in some way really as an invitation to us because this is, the, this is the life that we've been born into. And if we take the small self, we get frightened. But if we realize we're part of something so much bigger, so magnificent, the life force that's in you brought you to to birth and has kept you breathing and your heart's pumping, your liver's working and all these, <clears throat> you get 10, 100 billion new blood cells a day, you know, reborn in your body and you don't even have to do anything, <laughs> you know, it's all happening <laughs> um, and you, you get to be the artist with it and, and that's a beautiful thing. So, so spiritual life for me is not either about some great enlightened state or something that you fix and now I've got it, enlightened retirement. It's more like surfing, you know, waves are up, surf's up. Yeah, far out. Let's go out and ride the ra ride the waves. And then they go away. They go away. They Sometimes. get flat, you know, and so forth. Okay, this isn't a great surfing day. Or you take a really bad spill. No, and that's all right. Hmm. But it's not self-improvement. It's really much more about um, mystery and love and consciousness itself. Can we awaken and see the beauty in the eyes of the people around us and the lavender color in the puddles at sunset and taste, you know, what is it like to eat a kiwi? We mm. didn't have kiwis when I was growing up. They didn't ship those things from wherever they grew them. Now mm. they grow them, I'm sure, in California. <clears throat> I remember going to Asia and <clears throat> having my first taste of mangosteen or rambutan or these fruits that you don't get here or, or durian. And you know what it's like to eat a new fruit? You're like a kid again. Look at mm. the color of this. And wow, this whole other taste. And no one can tell you what an apple tastes like. They can All say right. it's sweet, it's fruity. No one can tell you until you taste it. And then you go, wow. And every day is like that. Every day is saying, hey, here's a new fruit every new moment of a new day that nobody in the entire galaxy has ever experienced before. And you get to bring beginner's mind to the table if you want. Hmm. Somehow, I want a durian. I think I have durian a... ice cream. It's very I good bet it's stuff. Good. Yeah, but you you know it smells the others... bad, but it tastes great. <laughs> <laughs> that's like life, right? Durian. That's what I heard. It <clears throat> smells durian. bad. You know, uh, yeah. the the thing about what you're saying is where my mind will go the next time I'm eating a fruit mm -hmm. is. You better enjoy this fruit, man. And then just the very act of trying to enjoy it, I won't enjoy it. It's, you know, the effort, like what you're saying. Here we are, this insane pulsation of cells and atoms that are perfectly harmonized to create a form that somehow we manage to believe is us. This It's all effortless. But the moment you apply the slightest effort to these things, it's all gone. It runs away. It's like you know, going in the woods and making loud uh, loud noises while you're trying to hunt. It just runs. So I might think, oh, I'm going to really enjoy this. This is it. I'm going to eat this durian fruit like I'm Deepak Chopra. But it's just... That's funny. I'm the opposite. I actually find, like, when I'm meditating, I love my mantra. But at the same time, I find it just as helpful to go be right here. 
while I'm doing it, just reminding myself what I'm doing. And if I say I'm going to Well, you're eat... clearly more spiritual than Duncan. Uh, well, <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> I'm interested in why uh, I, it's the No, no, he's saying me. something actually very important. And mm. what you're describing, Duncan, is what your mind is doing. It's a thought stream. So there you are with the mango or the mango scene in your hand, and then your your mind has a little bit of spiritual advice for you. You should be here fully enjoying yes. this. And then another part says, shut the fuck up. You know, I don't want to hear you telling me what to do. I just want to enjoy this. And another part says, see, you're just arguing with yourself. And, you know, and all <laughs> basically that's a stream of thoughts. And so you can say, oh, that's the mind. Thank you for your opinion. Mm. Right. And then you say, now let me hold this magazine. What is it like when I open it in my fingers? And it's not that you have to get rid of that or think, oh, I shouldn't have that. Part of really one of the best things about meditation is that you learn not to believe your mind. And right. so it does those things. That's what minds do. They secrete thoughts. And some of them are cool thoughts and some of them are stupid thoughts. You know, it's like that cartoon of the car from the New Yorker of this car driving across the Utah vast wide desert and the roadside billboard says your own tedious thoughts next 200 miles right <laughs> it just does it prompts a thought and you can believe it and then you say I'm a jerk or I'm magnificent I'm a fabulous person or I'm a horrible person so it has all those stories about you you, you pointed to him when you he did. said we both noticed me that. when you said horrible we both noticed that <laughs> I thought I pointed the other way <laughs> I, yeah. I certainly wasn't trying to... Uh, you know that. I know, of course. I was, that wasn't even in my mind. But, you know, so to, to, <laughs> to know... I mean, one of the simplest exercises I do and I teach people is to have them count their thoughts for 60 seconds. And mm. they'll count, you know, six thoughts or 12 thoughts or 13 thoughts or something like that, picture and word thoughts. The beautiful thing about it is that they realize that the thoughts are thinking themselves... You know, and that it's possible to become the witnessing of the thoughts and notice, oh, there's a healthy thought, there's a unhealthy thought, there's one that's kind of destructive, doesn't have a lot of my good interest at heart. That's a conditioned thought of that kind of. And so you don't have to believe your thoughts. And that's tremendously helpful and liberating. Totally. <laughs> that's all I had. Me too. Totally. Totally, he says. Totally, Lee. Stop with that. Tell me but about then, you leaving your you body. Get... <laughs> he wants to hear about the metaphysical stuff. Yeah, I want to hear yeah. trippy what stuff. What do you want to hear? I want to hear about the first time. Could you? So I'm there. But Jack, I am. before you go, yeah, right. just know that I've been told many of these stories, and I'm not a skeptical person. Duncan, yeah. you know that. I'm never convinced. I just don't think the story is told. I've had people tell oh. stories of losing their car keys that have more wonder in them. I'm not... That sounds very good to me. I mean, car <laughs> keys are, it's amazing because, you know, car keys, now your car actually waits for you and it opens itself. I mean, that's, uh, if, yeah. if you were like some shaman coming out of Africa or the Amazon or that Siberia or something, and you'd watch somebody walk up to their car and it would light up and say, dude, this guy's got some real chops as a shaman. Yes. <clears throat> so I'm all right with you on the car keys. They're very cool. I don't mean to put a burden on you to tell like a charismatic story. I, I just want to believe just so bad. Just one story. Please, just please. Believe. Yeah. Well, nobody can help anybody believe. They have, you have to find your own thing, of course. But I will tell you this. So there I am, and this is just a common thing. 
I'm meditating away. I'm in this monastery in my early years as a monk. How long had you been meditating? Well, I was on a year-long silent retreat. And so that's a, that's a long-ass retreat. Wow. I know that's true. That's not a retreat. That was just... <laughs> that's right. That's like a prison sentence or something. Anyway, somebody said, yeah, I'm locked in a phone booth with a lunatic, basically. It was yeah, a, yeah. This little hut, right? Um, but anyway, and um, the instructions were to sit and for an hour and then walk for an hour and sit for an hour, kind of alternately being mindful of what was happening um, and I got very tired because they said, try to, th this particular teacher I was with said, try to cut back on your sleep. So ha the afternoon, I'm like sitting there and very sleepy and tired. And I say, all right, I'm going to let myself lie down and sleep, but only for 15 or 20 minutes because I'm supposed to be doing this meditation stuff and thinking that I'm going to get enlightened, which was, you know, I was young and naive. Um, and that's how you thought about things at that time. And so I lay down. And 15 minutes passed, and I lay down on a hard wooden floor. I thought, well, I won't sleep too long that way. I woke up, and I started to do my walking meditation. There was a little, like, veranda at the, on the outside of this hut. And I walked out, and I walked down the veranda. And then I looked over, and I could see in the distance my teacher and some other people at the other end of the campus and so forth. I walked back, turned around, and as I walked back into my hut, I saw, I was shocked, there was this person sleeping there. Hmm. I said, oh, how's that? That's really weird. And then I walked closer, I said, oh, it's me. How did that happen? I was, oh, I was so intent on getting up. My body was exhausted, just didn't want to get up. But I said, I'm going to get up. And I did. And I thought, oh, my gosh, this is, the, this, is, this is what they call an out-of-the-body experience. How cool. So I walked back outside, and I looked around, I walked back in. Oh, and then I came very out. close, and I kind of peered down at my body. And then I felt myself tumble back into my body. And then my eyes opened. I thought, oh, here I am, lying on the floor. Wow. So you asked for a first yes. story. And it's beautiful. Now, it's not that uncommon. People in a car accident report floating above their body. People in surgery, you know, it's a it's a relatively common thing for people when their lives are in danger in certain ways to leave their body and float out and feel that consciousness isn't limited by their body. So it's a relatively common thing. But the beautiful thing was that this wasn't an emergency. And then I realized, oh, you can train yourself to do this. And have you? I've repeated it. Yeah. Yeah. Are you at a point where you feel like you could do it if you wanted to? Yeah. Yeah. Have you ever... Now, I don't really... I do believe you, for what that's worth. I'm yeah, not saying that should mean anything right. to you. I think that's a lovely story. And this, I'm not usually burdened too much by this. I'm okay with paradox, and I'm okay with things that are transrational sure. beyond our reason. I mean, that's just, just a tiny story, but you asked for a beginning. I would I love some more. Yeah. Anyway, keep going. My, my question for you is, have you ever wanted to put a playing card on your desk and uh, not know what that card is and then try and leave your body and see if you could look at it and then have some sort of objective data? Yeah. Yeah, at certain times. <clears throat> How'd that go? But th this is a really interesting, and it's kind of a little bit paradoxical. When those kind of gates open up, then the kind of clinging materialist thing, it sort of goes away. It's, it's not all that interesting. It's like their sense of, wow, amazement, wonder is so much more juicy than whatever's on the playing card. And um, I don't, you know, I mean, I had a teacher 
who it was said had all these kind of psychic powers and Joseph Goldstein, my colleague, and I, Sharon Salzberg, at one point we said, well, would you show us to this woman? Mm. And she said, no. Um, and so I'm sorry. I wanted to watch her walk through a wall or materialize it. I've never seen that. I'd love to have seen it. Right. Um, uh, but there was some way, I think, in her response, uh, w which she was communicating, you know, that's really a a dead end. It's really a side thing. Yes, okay, here's Yuri Geller and he can bend a spoon with his mind and they get all the people in the lab and he's still bending a spoon and some scientist is saying, well, maybe he's kind of secretly blowing air over there and it's Susan. They can't figure out why or how it's happening, but it does happen, you know. Um, that but, that happened? There were scientists that yeah, watched a man bend yeah, a spoon? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I don't. I don't know. I, I I ran into these when I did that show with Rogan. We got to you know. There's activist skeptics who are. Oh yeah, yeah, of course. And, and I like those guys. They're I do good too. too. They're cool. But that's because spirituality isn't about. I mean, if you want something amazing, just walk out on the damn street and look around. Everything's amazing. Is you know, Walt Whitman said a mouse is miracle enough to stagger sextillions of infidels. The fact that life exists, that, you know, right. that little mouse crawls around the corner and that it has the same nervous system that you do, more or less, with eyes and ears and, mm. and, and you know, and, and responds to the world. Where did that come from? Where did all these... There are a million species of beetles on the earth. Oh, well, evolution, Darwin says, that's a nice thing to say, but... What's making all this display of life? Because right. here's the thing, you know, if set, if let's say suddenly some mystical child demonstrated in front of that they could levitate. There we are. I'm at the I'm the White House. I'm going to show show the White House press corps levitation. Yes. Here I am. I'm floating, and yes. everyone goes, "Okay, it really is mystical, right?" And how does he do that? And also, can we weaponize it? Right, that would be the next question. <laughs> that would be the next question. And then after they figure out how the levitation happens, mm -hmm. within two months, no one cares. The levitating child is old news. It's it's a it, so it's really what you're seeking is novelty. You're seeking the experience of wonder that happens when you realize you're in a bigger universe well, actually, than you thought you were. If we could prove that uh, this is my interest, it goes back to a fear of death. Actually, if we could prove that you're leaving your body mm -hmm. and that it's not just an imagination of your mind mm -hmm. and it's not just you constructing a very vivid dream. Then I would go, oh, Jack isn't uh, Jack. Jack is a spirit, just as we've always surmised, as we've always believed. And if I left my body, I know Christ said a faithless generation asks for a sign. I feel that way all the time. I'm like, yeah, you nailed me, Jesus. Uh, but the idea of getting out of my body and seeing my body and going, oh, this is me and there's that. And I'm seeing this and I'm experiencing this means that when that thing dies, who cares? But maybe the thing that pops out of your body dies, too. Uh, yeah, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> That's a problem. Maybe that thing dies too. You know, you get out of this shell. Maybe the thing, maybe the thing that gets out of the shell is also impermanent. And if that thing has another thing that pops out of its shell, maybe that thing dies too. It's just this, you know, infinite change. It's like even coming out of your body doesn't mean that everything isn't going to stop or end, or the universe isn't going to hit some zero uh, state. You know, there's no escape from death. Even if it, even if there's an escape from physical death, you know, I imagine no, no matter what, we're all going to face some oblivion. Isn't that the idea? Isn't that the idea that it's, or that it already is oblivion? <laughs> well, um, these are 
in some ways also metaphysical questions, you know, which um, both existence and time um, are all created together with consciousness. And does it mean that consciousness is eternal? Is it always going to be here? Is the universe created yeah. out of consciousness? I think so, but we'll have to wait and see. Um, these kind of questions, they're very compelling in a certain way in our minds. They were not actually very much of interest to the Buddha. Um, he said, I'm not actually interested in having you get a new sense, set of beliefs. All that stuff came later about past and future lives and stuff. There was That was part of the common belief of India, and he worked with it. But he said, I'm not interested in giving you a new set of beliefs. I'm more interested in your looking at the circumstances of human life, which you have for whatever reason. You got in there as Duncan and Pete and Jack and whatever. Here we are. Um, and you can do this in a way that creates pain and suffering for yourself and others that creates more entanglement and more loss and more difficulty in which case it's a it's a you know a a bad or a, an unhealthy or or um an unfortunate way to use it or you can take this very same human life and understanding the laws that govern it see what brings joy what brings ease what brings graciousness and care to yourself and others and in it there will come to you a sense of freedom right where you are not in the next life not in by some belief but in the very day that you're living with the very people that you are you can actually be free you can be free to love you can be free to create you can be free to serve someone else you can be free to care for yourself because they're not really separate in some way and this is possible for you um, and that, he said, I only teach this. I only teach what's practical for human beings to discover, to awaken and discover that, they, that there's a freedom that is your birthright. Hmm. And the rest, he said, you know, metaphysics was not really of much interest to hmm. him. I mean, I'd love to fly to the moon is all I'm saying. You sure. get bored of the moon. Well, and then Thomas Merton, the Christian mystic, says, of what avail is it to fly to the moon if we can't cross the abyss that separates us from ourselves, if we can't really know who we are? We can go outwardly places, and you all have. I'm sure you've traveled to wildly cool places, as I have in great things, but there's, some, there's this other journey of really awakening to who you are, to this mystery of consciousness, of, of awareness itself. What Ramdas calls loving awareness. Look at you say, you are loving awareness. You are this awareness itself. You are love itself. I don't think so. Well, that's a thought. Maybe you are loving awareness. Hmm. Maybe that was what was born in you, spirit. One more body story. <laughs> yeah, please, please. And I want one little levitation. It doesn't have to be very far. Just a couple inches would be enough. It's just because they're cool. <laughs> well, you know that story Terrence McKenna says. I, it's a it's a story about a, a guy who uh, went and meditated in the woods uh, until he could walk across water. He mm -hmm. meditated in the woods. Have you ever heard that story, Jack? I don't know. Tell he me. Meditated in the woods for years and years and years until he gained the ability to walk across water. And he went back to his master and said, "Look what I've done." And he shows him. He walks across water, and his master says, "The fairy costs a nickel." 
Hmm. He didn't need to go in the woods for years and years. What are you doing? That's right. That's it. <laughs> Still a cool story. Yeah. But, but see, Pete wants to watch him walk across water just one time. <laughs> I, I just... And then, you know, and then, he, then you say you won't be, be afraid of death. But I think you will anyway. I mean, because I notice in myself, we do have these openings to mystery and that thing that Alice Walker wrote about. We have our own experiences of oneness and of emptiness and of nothingness and of dream and coming back and so forth. And part of us feels like we're connected with eternity and another part is afraid. And that's part of being human. I think that's part of having a body. The body, I came back from the monastery after I'd been there for some years and I started to drive again. Um, and I was driving down the freeway and the truck in front of me blew a tire and one of the big parts of the tire came off and the other cars were swerving and almost crashing because there was this big pieces of black rubber, you know, on the highway kind of smashing into one car and things like that. And um, I thought, I was just a few cars back, that we were all going to crash and I was going to die. My mind was very calm because I'd been doing all this meditation. So peaceful, equanimity, just, oh, wow, maybe this is going to be it. Maybe I'll die. My body grabbed the steering wheel, wrenched it over. All this adrenaline came in. I want to live. I want. I got to steer myself through it. And it's almost like there are different parts of us. Mm. One part that says, oh, sure, eternity. Yeah, another says, not yet, baby. We're sure. <laughs> <laughs> and so you get to see all of that. And And spiritual life isn't somehow to get from one to the other, but to realize that it's all here, that it's mm. who we are, actually, and that we are both timeless beings, um, and you want to remember that. Without that, your life somehow gets lost down the rabbit hole of everything being very materialistic and so forth. But at the same time, in remembering it, you also then come back and tend your garden and how you drive and how you talk to people and what seeds you plant of beauty on this earth. Um, through your art or through your work or your business or something, um, they need to be respected equally much. So you have a foot in eternity and a foot in the human world. And um, that's the way you move. Nice. Awesome. <laughs> Call this episode, Not Yet Baby. Not Yet Baby. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Thank you, Jack. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We appreciate your support, and we ask you to continue that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash jack. Look forward to seeing you next week. Yeah.